0: OMG guys, this episode is crazy. I'm looking back on my 20 years of starting and running a super successful restaurant. In this episode, I'm working once again with my friend and fellow industry professional Jamie Oikel of RunningRestaurants.com, and this episode is titled One Foot from Disaster. I'm gonna tell you all the crazy things that happened to me in this business because I started with absolutely no restaurant experience, and you're gonna hear about chefs that stole four for me, and ice storms that closed my place for weeks, and all the profits that were lost, and floods, and all sorts of unexpected disasters that are always around the next corner in this business, and how I overcame all these challenges, again, with no experience to not only start several concepts, but have a multi-million dollar exit, so it's pretty huge, Um, it's a huge episode for many, many reasons, but uh, I wanted you to listen to this one, because not only if you're first starting your restaurant for the very first time, but if you've been a seasoned operator for a long, long time, there are so many nuggets of key information that you can apply to your to your business on a daily basis that'll double your profit, double your sales. I mean, this is unbelievable. So I had double the net profit of the average restaurant because of the systems I created and put in place. I'm going to talk about all of that. There's just so much to learn. And uh maybe laugh about because again i can look back on this stuff now and laugh but uh, you're not going to believe some of the crazy stories also uh Whether you're starting your first place again or you're a seasoned operator, I've got a free webinar and I'm going to put the link in the show notes on how to start and run a wildly successful restaurant. I'm going to be sharing my three secrets to fantastic success. And last, do not forget, our summer sale has been huge. It's coming to an end soon. You can still save really big on some of our most popular restaurant training tools and systems now for a limited time. It's summer. It's almost over. So check it out. I again put the links uh, in the show notes, but uh, you'll find that on the Restaurant Rockstars page, um, the shop page actually, at restaurantrockstars.com. Now go out there and rock your restaurant.
1: Hey, folks. Jamie Oikel here from runningrestaurants.com. I have an absolutely killer podcast session for you today where I go through everything with Roger Bodwin from restaurantrockstars.com. Uh, I go through the origin story um, all the way back to his beginnings. We walk through all the pitfalls that happened along the way, uh, the fascinating lessons that were learned, uh, the fact that he was inches from disaster several times, came through it, cranked through it, um, built, learned, grew along the way. We talk about what ultimately became the equation for success at his restaurants. Uh, We get into people and staff development and the the importance that they have in the equation, and then we talk about marketing and brand building and everything that goes into that in terms of why that's important for uh, lasting success. And then uh, ultimately we get into the exit strategy piece of the business, where if you're looking to sell, you want to maximize the value of your restaurant, and we talk about the systems that are important to get there, to have everything in place, so when you're ready for sell. You absolutely get the best uh, out of your restaurants. We cover a lot. It's absolutely a great session. You're going to want to listen in. Here we go. So, Roger, your origin story. Walk me through it. What do you got, man?
2: Well, it all started quite a long time ago, James, it was probably 24-plus years ago, and uh, I had been a big skier for a long, long time, and I was interviewing for a job in Maine at a very large ski resort. I had several prior ski industry jobs. That's sort of been my passion. And the odd thing about it was uh, I grew up in, you know, western uh, New England, and I was very close to lots of major ski resorts in Vermont. And if you know anything about the ski industry, most of these resorts are overdeveloped. You drive up an access road, and there's lots of infrastructure. There's lots of restaurants. There's lots of bars. There's lots of retail shops, condominiums. All the stuff that feeds off the lot, you know, the huge traffic that generally goes to right. ski resorts. And uh, I was on this job interview in Maine, and it was so funny because I'm driving and I'm probably a, maybe a mile away from this ski area, and I'm not seeing anything but potato fields and pine forests. And I knew this was the second largest resort in all of New England at the time. It was called Sunday River, and it was right. this sleepy little town, and there was nothing there, and. You know, I was on this job interview, and it took a while before they decided to hire me, and they probably invited me back on three different interviews, but after the very first one, the really odd thing was I passed this piece of property that was this 10-acre pine forest, and visions of this little tiny hole-in-the-wall restaurant that I had been to in Switzerland numerous times popped into my head where it was a ski bar type environment. You walk in the door, but there were people from all over the world, and they were drinking big steins of beer, and they were singing drinking songs in 10 different languages. And there's this one guy in the corner, and he's got this small little pizza oven, and he's making pizzas as fast as he could. And everybody's eating pizza and drinking beer and watching ski movies on a big screen. And suddenly that idea, that vision pops into my head on this Joss interview as I'm passing this piece of property for sale. And I'm like, That's what I'm going to do, you know. I don't care if I get this job or not, but it's like, wow. I've never been in the restaurant business, but I could totally dig the vibe. I've always enjoyed places like that. So I went home after that job interview. I was living in Boston at the time, about three hours away, and I started writing this crazy business plan saying I want to buy this piece of land and I want to build an authentic Swiss chalet-type building and I want to serve big, giant steins of beer, you know, and I want this European vibe and stuff because I had been to Europe so many times. And the business plan literally was asking for a million dollars, and I went like I said, I went back on a couple of different job interviews over the course of the next few months, and I started doing market research and There were only probably three or four restaurants, and every single one of them would get crushed just about every day they couldn 't handle the business because five hundred thousand skiers you know came through this place in the wintertime and but I, I tried these restaurants, and the food was awful, or the service was bad. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know anything about this business, but I do know that the customer wants good food, they want great service, and they want a cool ambiance. And none of these places are delivering that. So that's kind of how it all came about. And then, obviously, getting this thing financed was a challenge. But that's kind of the backstory of how I got into the restaurant business with no restaurant experience.
1: Well, that's what I was gonna say, man. So you're you're, you're you have a vision, you have an idea. And you have this uh, picture in your head of an experience that you had um, in, in Europe. And you're like, man, I'm going to start that. And, of course, a lot of restaurant owners uh, have that sort of start, that, that idea that they want to do something. But that's what you did. You didn't have experience running a restaurant. You, and so you just did that. Did you raise money? Did you, How did you get started? What happened next?
2: Well, the first thing I did was I took this basic business plan. I had gone to business school. So, you know, I want to make it clear that I did have – Um, you know, business acumen, you might say. I had an MBA from a good school, and I knew how to write a business plan. So the business plan was pretty solid, but it was pie in the sky. It's like, I want a million dollars because I need to buy this 10-acre piece of land. I need to do new construction, build a building, buy all the equipment, have working capital, you know, and I was projecting that I needed a million bucks. So I started going to commercial banks as opposed to, you know, I don't... I'm sure there's always been an angel investor network, but I really wasn't connected to any high-net-worth individuals that were going to hand me a million bucks or anything like that. You know, my my parents were behind me, of course. They were going to give me some money to to get started because whenever you go for a commercial loan, you always need a down payment, that sort of thing. But these first few um, bank interviews, the very first question, as anyone can imagine, is how many bars or restaurants have you ever owned or managed before? Because obviously I've never been in the business. And I couldn't answer that question other than truthfully saying, Well, I've never been in the restaurant business before. I don't know the first thing about it. But I got a great idea and I got a great business plan. And this place up at Sunday River needs everything and everybody's succeeding in spite of themselves. And if I just do a, you know, if I just do it half as good as they're doing, I'm still gonna do okay. Not that that was my intent, of course, but that was the pitch, you know? And everybody kind of laughed me out of the office saying, yeah, go get some experience first and maybe we'll see in a few years. You know, that was the typical answer. So we probably went on, uh, you know, 10 different appointments with 10 different commercial lenders and the answer was always the same. It was starting to get pretty discouraging until through some connection, um a long time ago like I said this is this is going back 20 plus years ago but the largest commercial bank in New England at the time was called Fleet Bank they were based in Providence Rhode Island and they later got bought out by Bank of America and they were growing really really fast well anyway somehow I stumbled upon a loan officer at Fleet Bank, who just happened to ski this particular ski area just about every weekend. And he had been going there for okay. years, and he was well aware of the situation. He knew that there were a bunch of restaurants that had lines out the door. He knew that there wasn't enough, you know, oppor- there was too much opportunity and that this place clearly needed to be developed, and he knew that the traffic was there. And then he believed in my, you know, my, my um, business skills and all that. And he read the business plan, and he's like, okay, I totally think this can work. I just, I just think you're, you're biting off too much, you know, right off the bat without the experience. You've got to start off much smaller. I'm not giving you a million-dollar loan. If you scale this project way back, I'll give you $150,000. So I'm like, whoa, what can you do with $150,000? You certainly can't buy land, build a building, buy equipment. You've got to go into an existing space. And then we started looking for commercial, you know, rentable space. And there was nothing close to the to the ski area, which was literally six miles away from this small town. So the, there was very little, you know, real estate available. However, there was a new – here's where the story kind of gets interesting. There was a new development on the table where some wealthy people were putting in this big real estate development that was going to have a pedestrian mall. It was going to have retail shops. It was going to have a movie theater. There was going to be a hotel at the at the end of the street that anchored the whole thing. And it was coming online within the next eight months or so. So I started looking at a space there, and the space that really appealed to me was next door to the movie theater. So I'm like, okay, built in local traffic at the movies, built in ski area traffic and all that kind of stuff, but it was prohibitively expensive. They wanted a ridiculous right. amount of square f- cost per square foot. The building had been built, but it was raw. It was not fit up on the interior. There was no plumbing. There was no electrical, none of that kind of stuff. And I literally had to fit out this building, and I didn't have enough money to do it. Plus, I knew that, you know, it's something just screamed this isn't going to work. The numbers are just not going to work, and it's going to take forever to capture an ROI there. So the only other space available, Jane, was this place that was on the wrong side of the railroad track, this run-down little strip mall, you know, that had a leaky roof and really limited parking and all that sort of stuff. The visibility wasn't great from the road, none of that. And uh, that was the only thing available. But the only thing it had going for it was it it had been four failed restaurants before I got there. Literally four restaurants came and went within maybe a year and a half's time. So they each lasted a couple of months. I didn't know what they were doing. Went out of business fast. But some of the equipment was there. There was range hoods. There was a walk-in cooler and a compressor. There was a freezer. You know, there was tables and chairs and all this stuff that the landlord owned that went with the space. So that was really the only option. So, you know, we had just enough money to, you know, get this place open and, you know, put a fresh coat of paint on it and kind of give it a really European vibe like I talked about. And literally, you know, when I think back on it, it turned out really, really cool. But then that leads me to the next story. You know, we lost $40,000 of the 150 to a con man just before we opened and that's the next part of the equation.
1: All right, I want to I'll ask you about that real quick, but you went so you went into a Bermuda Triangle location, that I call them that, the ones that uh, that flip out repeatedly, and you know, those scare uh-huh. the crap out of me and you see yeah. one restaurant go in and it's gone like before you even before you even have a chance to go in and then another one goes in and it's yep. gone. And That's right. and you went in you went into one of those. You you you, you weren't nervous about that uh, Bermuda Triangle disappearing? phenomenon? Well,
2: i got to say I was absolutely nervous about it. You know, um, I was totally nervous about that. And I remember my dad was a real hands-on guy and my parents were ultra supportive of anything I wanted to do, you know, and they obviously gave me the down payment to, to get the loan and to start all this. And I had borrowed the money and I had signed the lease and all this kind of stuff. And the funny thing about this space, here's the, here's the pivotal part of this door, James. You walk in the front door, this Bermuda trial, Triangle location, as you call it, And there was this funky wall directly in front of you there really wasn't a host podium of any kind and there was a long hallway to the left and a long hallway to the right and one went to like a little lounge area and the other went to the dining room and you had to walk all the way down this long hallway to kind of get to the host podium once you figured out which way you wanted to go and Obviously that wasn't going to fly. I had to knock that wall down and open up the space. And I see my father in front of me with the sledgehammer. He's like, "Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this?" Because he had no clue, you know. He really um <laughs> you know, he was just there to help, but he was like, I think he was more nervous than anyone. "Are you sure you want to do this?" Because once I start knocking walls down, you're like fully committed. Well, I was already committed. I'd borrowed the money, I'd signed the lease, you know. So then all of a sudden the wall comes down and the rest of it was just, okay, we got a few months to polish this place up and get a few pieces of equipment and hire a chef and you know, at the time I thought I really needed a full blown chef and to me and, and that was a a real irony because I found out later that I didn't really need a chef. I wasn't doing five star dining Ritz Carlton food, you know. I did not need a chef. I needed someone who could cook, someone who could manage a kitchen. I did not need a credentialed person, but not knowing anything, I was looking for a credentialed chef. I ultimately found one, but before I did, you know, there was a series of pitfalls. I mentioned one earlier. So that was kind of yeah, that was the Bermuda triangle location. And like I said, the roof leak, there was no parking. One other critical piece of the story, um, I mentioned there was very little visibility from the road. Well not initially. I don't think I would have signed the lease if I had known what was going to happen. So All the skier traffic coming up from Massachusetts literally had to drive directly in front of this Bermuda Triangle location. It was the side street that led to the main highway that led to the ski area. So, you know, there was tremendous traffic. But then, you know, when this whole project um, that I almost went into with the movie theater, all that thing hit a standstill, the Department of Transportation came in and they put a bypass road in about a quarter Mm -hmm. of a mile closer. To the ski area, but then they shut down the road that I was on. And I didn't know this was going to happen. So, literally, you could drive up Main Street into Sleepy Town, USA, and, and my place was on the corner. But if you were a skier, you didn't need to do that anymore. All you needed to do was take a right hand turn on this new bypass road. You couldn't even see my face from it. And now I'm losing all that tremendous amount of traffic. It was a hugely intimidating thing when we found out that that was going to happen. And it's just crazy and then you know Roger, there's so many stories had, leading up to this
1: you had you had this is funny because we i I've talked with Roger quite a bit but we've never gone all the way back to the to this origin piece and what's funny is you you literally had everything going for you at this point <laughs> i'm being sarcastic and but but what's funny is you know what we we're, we we're, what we'll get to is you know it turns this into a, a, wild, a wild success story so it's going to be kind of interesting to hear how you you went from uh from this yes. of geez i mean not not too much is going right in your story mm-hmm. so far um no. you know you got and you had a guy that take to take four yeah the guy took 40k from you you hired you know you hire a big expensive chef that you don't need uh make you're making so many mistakes because you're you know you don't have that experience in the business and where wh- where does it make a turn what um or what else happened that uh sets you up for a super super start well you know i was I was able to hire
2: a consultant that was a credentialed chef, a pretty successful guy, and he was young, and we hit it off and we did really well. And I would have wanted to hire him. Before I hired that other credentialed chef, I really wanted to hire this guy who was my consultant. But this guy literally set up the kitchen, set up the menu. It was pretty simple, you know, not knowing what you're doing is keep it simple stupid was our mantra. So it was all based on this wood-fired pizzeria theme. We were going to build a brick oven right in the middle of the dining room, and I was trying to recreate that experience that i told you about in switzerland so we had you know one salad that was a really appealing salad we had pizza 10 or 15 different ways we had a couple of simple pasta dishes and we knew we wanted to cross utilize the ingredients to, to keep our inventory low to keep our merchandise turning over keep the waste and spoilage down so that was to keep it simple stupid part we didn't have a full bar with alcohol and liquor we only had beer and wine soft jazz music all that was the good stuff you know um, so we hired this consultant guy. He set up the menu, but then he had to get back to his regular gig. But he, in turn, led me to that other credentialed chef that I, that, I, that I thought I needed to hire, and then he took it from there. He executed the menu. The food was delicious. Right off the bat, people were loving it. But two weeks before we were opening our doors, you know, this space, this Bermuda Triangle space we keep talking about was about a quarter of a mile away from a major river that goes through town. and. This was – there was torrential rains for, like, a week or something, and the river overflowed its banks, and this part of town was kind of on the lowlands and all this sort of stuff, and the floodwaters literally came up Main Street, came into our parking lot, and probably stopped about a foot short of our front door, like, maybe a week before we were going to open, but had it come up any farther – like the water would have submerged the entire restaurant. The carpets would have been ruined. You know, we would have had to gut that whole thing. It would have delayed the opening. It would have cost us money we didn't have because we had already lost $40,000 to this con man chef I hired. So, yeah, I mean, the bad kept coming and coming. It was an extremely stressful time. But then the flood water you know, recedes, we open on target and then right from the get go, people are digging what we're what we're putting out there. You know, they're loving the wood fired pizza. It was all about food service and ambiance. I was starting to train my staff, you know, with this concept that I later started calling sales stars and the service was great, the ambiance was cool, and people started to talk, and I did very little advertising, and the word of mouth kicked in, and literally there were lines out the door, and I started to steal business from all those other restaurants, So we we couldn't keep up. It was just too crazy, and we didn't have too many seats. I think we started with 80 seats uh, that first season, and then the second season, we were able to um, expand. Uh, we were able to bring in 20 more seats, and then there was 100 seats and all that kind of stuff, and then You know, and then there's more to the story to that. But that's kind of – those are the true origins of opening the doors for the first time. You know, we had a huge takeout business. The phone was ringing off the hook. You know, we started to – we didn't do delivery at first, but, I mean, tons of takeout business, tons of sit-down business. It was just crazy. And people were just loving what we were doing because there was such a need for it. And it was a sophisticated concept, you know, based on – my European experiences and all the other places were just rinky dink mom and pops that were just putting out, you know, whatever they were putting out, but they weren't doing anything special. The service was, like I said, average at best, food was average at best, no real ambiance, but yet they were succeeding in spite of themselves. And I don't mean to just pick on restaurants here. There were other businesses too, and no one seemed to care about service. You know, back then video rental stores were big and there was a video rental place and you'd go in there and they'd act like you were doing them a favor by, you know, by patronizing them. You know, it's like the attitude, it was just, I just didn't, I just couldn't get over it. And that was, that was literally the catalyst for this superior level of service where we treated every customer like they were the most in customer most important customer in the place even though the place was full we made friends with customers every night you know we gave them great experiences we gave them great food and the ambiance was wonderful and it was just a beautiful way to start and then that led to even greater successes down the road
1: yeah yeah i want to i want to do a couple things right here and 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 just kind of highlight the fact that you you pointed something out you you came into a marketplace and you felt like you know everything was very average or below average and people were doing it doing it anyway because they didn't have many choices and so once you give them a better experience then then that starts to feed off itself and really the surprise is i would i would argue that that's it's it's still true today because like nine out of ten of my experiences are very much below average when i go out to eat um whether the food is mediocre, the service is definitely mediocre, and you know, people have figured out the ambiance a lot of times, you know, places are yeah. cute and kitschy and they have mm-hmm. ideas, so that's usually solved these days, I think that, you know, you go back 20 years ago, places were probably kind of plain Jane, and, but I think people have kind of solved the ambiance, but the food, and the food maybe somewhat, the service people are still totally dropping the ball, so I, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit, a little bit more. But, but, but I also before before I let you go, I I I, I figured out the title for your next book because Roger's written, written, <laughs> okay. written one book and I'm yeah. sure he's going to write more in the future. But one, the, the title is "One Foot from Disaster: How I yes, Turned You know, from you know OFC. what I mean? Because you were you were you're <laughs> exactly if that if that flood water had come in. I, I promise you, you probably it, this whole thing probably would have just floated away with with the with the with the, the water from the river because you, you I don't know I don't know that you would have come back from that with all the things that we just getting started that would have been the death knell. So you were literally one foot from disaster, and and I think probably yes. for restaurants that are that are listening to this operators they probably had their their own their own similar story of you know being inches from disaster and turning it around and that's kind of the fascinating part about each each success story that you'll find in the business is that kind of that moment those critical uh, times in your business where you're like you're hinging on disaster and then you overcome that. But I think I think what was most successful for you is the philosophy of delivering above and beyond what else was available and then just and then just cranking into that system and doubling down on it so let's let's go to the service the service side where I think that's probably where you were able to separate yourself the most and of course you, you know you, you later built sales stars and that was a big part yeah talk about that okay. piece of it you know kind of exclusively and in, in, in terms of how you found that to be a differentiator for for the business well I believe service okay
2: so the key word here besides service is the word brand Okay, so right from the get-go, my mindset was always about not building a restaurant but building a brand, which meant everything about it had to reinforce, sustain, and elevate that brand right down to the staff. I recognized quickly that the staff could either be, you know, order takers, you know, that that could potentially sabotage sabotage your business if they weren't trained properly, but they could more importantly become brand ambassadors that really took people on what I call this magical journey of what our restaurant was about. I think I realized very quickly that there were going to be first-time visitors that didn't hear the word of mouth from other people, that didn't have any preconceived notions, had no idea what our restaurant was about, but I wanted them to feel welcome. I wanted them to feel like they were regulars, as if they were old friends, and then I wanted them to quickly know what was great about the place. And that leads me to this concept of hooks. You know, a hook is a way of doing business. It's a nugget of information that separates your restaurant apart from the competition. That's all about brand building, right? It might be the recipes. It might be the backstory of how you started this place. But it's all the interesting things about what you do and how you do it that's interesting to the customer that suddenly they feel a sense of belonging to. Like, I I can relate to that. Yeah, I love that idea. Yeah, I feel comfortable here. I feel like this is my place. That's called affinity, right? So all these things came together. And so I trained each individual person to represent the brand as their own individual brand that was on strategy with our brand. So every person in any restaurant has a unique personality, and you want to encourage that. You want people to be who they are authentically and not come across with this canned sales pitch. You know, you want them to authentically, one, believe in what you're doing so strongly and believe in the food and have their favorite. And then you want them to make recommendations, and you want them to tell your customer everything that we know the customer is going to enjoy if they've never been in the place before, they've never seen our menu before. It's like you want them to feel like they've been there 100 times before, and they keep coming back for more. So that was the brand building. And then the next part of the piece was the uniforms, right, the authenticity. We were recreating a Swiss experience as if you were to go to Switzerland and see the, the window boxes from the wooden chalets filling over with geraniums and the cuckoo clocks and the chocolate and the smells and the sights and the sounds and the mm-hmm. mountains. And there were traditional vests from Switzerland that were red and, and the work you know the, the the farm workers actually wear these things all over Switzerland and they have little buttons that are in the shape of hearts. And the furniture, you know, if you've seen that European chalet furniture, it's heavy wooden tables and chairs. We, we had chairs made that had little heart-shaped cutouts out of the back of the seats, you know, we, and we played, you know, really soft jazz and European music. We brought this whole brand ambiance to life. And then the last part of that equation was training people not only how to serve, not, the bas- not just the basics of hospitality, but also how to sell. Because it is about making recommendations and suggestions, not just having the pad and pen in hand and saying, what will you have? Taking the order, delivering the food, and then when the food's ready, you bring the food over and you auction it off. Oh, who had the fish? Who had the steak? You know, it's like that is such horrible service. And I made sure that every single person, you know, knew the menu inside and out, didn't have, a pad and pen in hand, made recommendations, took the order, and then knew who had what food, you know, so that we're placing the proper food. In, and this is just basic hospitality. But then at every stage of the meal, it's a series of opportunities where you tell people about everything they're going to enjoy next and every, all the hooks and everything that's special about the place. And that, to me, is what I call the magical journey. And so few restaurants do that. So few restaurants train their staff in that hospitality and salesmanship philosophy. And that's really what led to this Sales Stars system now that, that's available for restaurants.
1: All right, well, Raj really, really, really cool there and you have lots of stuff going on there. But my first question goes, goes to the people, right? I am like, oh man, he's, he's talking about all these things and, and that all sounds good and wouldn't it be great if your staff made recommendations and knew what was going on and was building the brand and people are like, oh man, that sounds like a magical formula, but where do I find the people to do that? you probably had some of those problems going in right finding the right people oh, yes and absolutely. then and then developing them but, but how do you do it how did how did you find success in people because i know in talking with you you eventually found the equation where your turnover was was nil people would come back to your seasonal place what do you think were the important pieces there
2: yeah that is a fantastic question because we absolutely had labor issues right from the beginning just like anyone so you know, there are lots of resort communities where it's expensive to live close to the resort and a lot of the employees have to commute from, you know, other communities that are maybe a half an hour away that are not part of the resort communities, you know. And that was certainly the case with us. I don't believe we had trouble in the beginning getting enough staff. I think we had trouble getting the quality staff. And yeah, there were a few bad apples that didn't really want to do things our way, they just came in, they they either had bad habits because they had been servers in other restaurants, um, that sort of thing. So we definitely had to, you know, terminate people that weren't fitting the mold of my vision for the place. And I knew right from the get-go, I can't work with this person. If this person isn't trainable, if this person isn't going to assimilate this brand and be part of this culture that I want to create and this philosophy of what we want to ultimately deliver the customer, I can't work with these people, you know. It's, it's not going to be fun anymore, and it's got to be fun. It's got to be about chemistry and camaraderie. And, you know, it has to become this culture, this culture of hospitality family and fun where everyone feels like family everyone's having fun everyone likes working together and it's all a common purpose so there had to be four or five people right from the get-go that just had to go that just didn't fit um you know and you don't know that people people have a tendency to tell you what they think you want to hear in a job interview they look okay you know, face-to-face, and you don't know what you're going to get, so you get it until the training starts, and then they refuse to, like I say, assimilate the training. But here's the shining star in that, you know, in that negative. It's like every business on this planet, every restaurant probably has at least one A-team player, I call them, and these are the people that just have the right approach. They they have a true desire to serve the public. They're reliable. They're friendly. They're personable. They're just fun to be around. And they're and it just spreads like you know, it just spreads. That that personality and that approach is just infectious. And so I I quickly ask them, who else do you know is like yourself that may fit that may be looking for something else, you know, that wants a fresh perspective on on a, on a job. And so my A team, I had probably two A team players right off the bat, and they brought two or three other A team players. And then pretty soon, a couple of weeks later, some of those new A teamers brought an A or a B team player. And then all of a sudden we just started, I had this philosophy, we called it weeding the garden. And if you were a C player and if you really didn't have that right approach and if you, didn't, if you were just there to collect a paycheck, you weren't for us, you know. And and it became very quickly evident that those people were not delivering great service to the customer. And I wouldn't even let them on the floor. You know, we try out for a shift or two. And if you just didn't have that right stuff, and if you were there for the wrong reasons, man, we weeded the garden and we just kept finding A-teamers or B-teamers. And I've explained this to you before. A B-team player has the right attitude. They have the right approach. They just need a little polish. They just need to watch an A-teamer or shadow them for a couple of shifts to really assimilate the best practices while they're practicing their own end game, and then pretty soon they're an A-team player. And if you concentrate on using your A's to train your B's, then all of a sudden you only have A's. You no longer have C's because you weeded the garden and you got rid of them because they're not doing you any favors, you know. And a lot of people, you see the help wanted ads in the windows all the time of restaurants and businesses, and that's not necessarily the way to hire. I never hired that way. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how we started to develop the staff. And then once we had this dream team staff, then I just kept refining this training that I called Sales Guard, you know. And it was all about restaurant knowledge and product knowledge so that they knew their menus inside out. They knew the restaurant inside and out. And they knew the backstory, They knew the hooks. They knew everything about our place that was different and exciting and better than the competition. And they spread that you know, at every single table. They spread that magic like magic dust. And then then that led to the plate presentations. And then everything about the plate had to have what I call wow factor, where it started with the food. When you put the food in front of someone, every plate presentation, you know, And there were no camera phones back then, you know, this is 25 years ago, you you know, there were no smartphones with with cameras and that kind of stuff. But today, you know the story, the phones come out and people are snapping pictures of the food because it looks so, it's a work of art. They don't even want to cut into it with a fork or a knife and and they say wow to the table when it's put in front of them. So that's wow factor, you know, and everything about us had to have wow factor from the ambiance to the service to the food, everything was about wow factor and, you know, The training just kicked in from there, training every staff person to think like an owner and to assimilate, you know, put themselves in the guest position, see things before the guest sees them. Anticipate needs was a big thing, too. You know, an extra level of service in any restaurant is, noticing that someone just dropped a fork on the floor even if it's not your section and immediately going over and presenting the guests with a new fork noticing that their water glasses are empty and immediately keeping those water glasses full noticing that their bottle of wine is just about out and suggesting another bottle of wine or you know that's what it is it's it's anticipating needs before a customer needs something and has to flag down a server that to me is you know it's poor service anticipating needs is superior service you know and and we can just keep talking on this topic all day but those are the basic fundamentals of our service delivery
1: yeah, you're absolutely right, that that difference between anticipation where they deliver before you even ask or they respond without having to look around and, and nod your head and like look for your guy and, and everyone else has their eyes down, they won't pay attention to you, that stuff is a huge pet peeve of mine. I really, really liked your phrase, weed the garden, um, and for, for, for folks listening that have C players, you have to do it. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, I need the warm body, I need someone on my on my floor. But um, you you can't. You have to move beyond that. You've got you've got to bring them out of your system. You've got to look at your Bs and your As and use those guys to all build each other up. And so when you do that, you have a great system. And so everything was was going well, going well. And I, and I know that you didn't stay in the Bermuda Triangle location forever. What happened where you got to be bigger and you got to more more of your more of your dream uh, became real? How did that come to fruition?
2: Well, you know, I mentioned earlier that. This Swiss chalet building in the pine forest that was my original vision for the place, which I wasn't able to do right from the get-go. But I never lost that dream. And I always wanted to be closer to the ski resort. I always wanted to have these amazing giant glass picture windows that looked up at all the, you know, the ribbons of white ski trails all over the mountain and there was another piece of property i didn't end up buying the one that i originally saw because that ultimately sold and it was turned into a condominium complex so it never became a restaurant space but there was one other piece of property over the you know um over the three seasons that i ran this place in this bermuda triangle location every time i went up the access road to the ski resort i kept looking at this 18 acre piece of property Literally at the doorstep of the resort, and it was this old farmhouse and an old barn on a knoll, you know, and there was 1,500 feet of road frontage where every single skier had to pass by this property twice, and there was a huge for sale sign. For two and a half years, there's this for sale sign on the lawn and you know i inquired and the price kept coming down and coming down and and by today's standards this is ridiculous i mean even the original price would be ridiculous today in in a in a real inexpensive sort of way but the original price was four hundred thousand dollars for 18 acres of this prime real estate with those amazing views of the mountain i'm talking about literally less than a quarter of a mile from the action you know where i was six miles away in the bermuda triangle And so ultimately, two and a half years later, now the price is $210,000. And I knew we had a two-year track record of success where, you know, we were profitable right from the get-go with that first place. And I don't know if this is relevant to the story or not. You know, we talked about early pitfalls in this restaurant, and I don't want anyone to think that, okay, once we got over the flood issue, one foot from disaster that it was all over. No, that very first winter after we opened up, Um, We decided to try and open for the summer, even though there was no skier traffic, to see if we could survive simply on the local traffic. Now, the population of this town was 2,000 people year-round, and we quickly lost our shirt by opening up. So we made money right from the get-go that first season, you know, made good money. We were profitable right, right out of the gate, but then we proceeded to lose all that money by opening that summer you know, serving right. two people for dinner some nights and 10 people the next. I mean, you can't survive long doing that, but we wouldn't have known if we didn't start. But anyway, that's that's a whole other story. So a series of pitfalls happens. But nonetheless, I was able to go back um, to different banks at this point. I went back to some of the original ones that turned me down and basically said, look, I did what I said I could do. I, I showed that I could run a, a successful restaurant. Now, here's this grand vision of, give me a million dollar loan and we're going to build this twist chalet and we're going to, you know, really rock and roll this place. And so there was a local bank um, that I ended up working with for about 20 years, had a fantastic relationship with the same lending officer over 20 years. And at this point, he's like, absolutely, this is a grand slam home run and he wrote the million dollar check. And we basically bought that property, 18 acres for $210,000. We then built a 6,000 square foot post and beam Swiss chalet on that piece of land later expanded it to 8000 plus square feet and every single year we grew that business in a certain way we grew the bar business we went in the live entertainment doing rock bands and we really turned that place into this this iconic destination but that didn't happen overnight either you know, everyone's seen the the Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams, and the famous line from that is, if you build it, they will come. Well, that's what I believed, too. I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I've am i had two years of success in this location. Now I'm going to build something literally right there, this huge, grandiose property, and now suddenly I'm going to capture every single skier that goes to a ski resort, and I'm going to have lines out the door again. That's what I thought, and oddly, that did not happen. The very first season, I remember that we built it, and I'm standing in the window looking at the road and all these cars are just driving by and no one's driving into the parking lot. And I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, oh my God, for every forty cars that drives by, maybe one comes in. And it's just taking a while to build the business. And uh, you know, we still had the successful place downtown, which was the wood fired pizzeria. I failed to mention this new building was the steakhouse. And I'm like, Okay, if pizza's gonna work, steak is gonna work, right? And it just took time to build that clientele, and I had to be patient. And I'm watching my working capital disappear, and we're not serving a lot of dinners every single night. We're not serving a lot of alcohol yet. And all this stuff is, I'm like, oh, my gosh, are we going to lose our shirt on this deal? And then another really disastrous thing happened. Several weeks into the season, there's this major New England ice storm. And if anyone in a warm climate doesn't know what an ice storm is, literally it rains, you know, during Um, a a warm spell, and then everything immediately freezes, so now you've got ice hanging on all these trees, and the weight of the ice is is knocking the trees down, and all this is falling on power lines, and it's just this disastrous situation where the power's knocked out in like a 50-mile radius, and the crews can't keep up, and the power's out for like three weeks, and we're, you know, we're literally running on candle power, you know, And, and we lost so much business for like a three-week period and there was really not much we could do to catch up before the season was over. We knew again that we weren't going to reopen that summer because no one was going to be there. So it's like you got this huge overhead. You lose three critical weeks of business because of this power outage and this ice storm. How can you possibly survive this? And we did. I mean, there's a story to that too, but These are the pitfalls. And then it took a couple of seasons to gain that momentum and to get people in the door and then to turn it into this iconic place that that was this brand that everyone suddenly loved, you know. And then we built affinity with mug clubs and all these other ideas that were hugely successful marketing ideas. And then we dominated the competition for like the next 18 or 19 years. And the place is still doing that today, even though I sold it. So, yeah, it's a series of hard knock stories that. You know, that ultimately led to huge successes, but, you know, the average person would have been so discouraged every step of the way, and I'm not saying that I wasn't discouraged. I certainly was, but failure wasn't an option, and I just had to keep going because I owed the bank a whole lot of money, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, listen, a couple things I want to come back to is, one, Roger's point, if you didn't catch it, catch on is he quickly turned into a, a seasonal business just just open for what four months four months out of the year yeah yeah it was really
2: thanksgiving four. through like the first week of april so it was about 20 21 weeks you know it was it was about yeah four month season it was a real tight window and if it rained then that would affect your business if it you know if it didn't snow that would affect your business it was you know there were a lot of ups and downs a lot of sleepless nights a lot of um lot of challenges there you know when you're in a weather dependent location and uh you know you're you're counting on that weather to be perfect you're counting on it to snow you're counting on it to be cold enough so that the ski area can make artificial snow which is the lifeblood of the ski industry today but if it's above 30 you know five degrees or so you can't make snow so yeah and then people don't come because most of a the traffic is destination traffic from major cities like boston and hartford and and that sort of thing in portland maine and yeah if there's no snow in your backyard in boston and you look outside and it's you know 50 degrees and the birds are chirping you're thinking about golf you're not thinking about skiing even if the ski area is making snow so we had to overcome all of those challenges to get you know to get a steady business going and thankfully we had enough good winters that uh, we were able to build a cash cushion and all that kind of stuff and, you know, carefully planned strategic um, projects that would add return on investment and would increase sales. And, and we, you know, we did relentless guerrilla marketing and all that sort of stuff was pivotal to the success of, of this place, you know, and then it just goes from there.
1: Yeah, well, we're, yeah, exactly. Where I wanted to kind of go with that as a reminder is, you know, with a mindset of a seasonal business where you have 20, 21, 22 weeks to make your money for the year or you're screwed, um, What I, what I like about that story is it forced Roger to really, you know, hone those systems over the years. To make those you know 20 plus weeks you know kick kick ass because you literally closing the door for the other parts of the seasons and and the the lesson for folks is there there may be a night um, or a week that you should just close down and we've talked I've talked with Roger about this yes, before for sure because mm-hmm. you're, you, know, you you know your your break even is way off and you're just losing money by being open so he realized that so he said well all right I'm going to be open four I'm going to be open for months so I'm gonna I'm gonna nail my staff my service my people my marketing and obviously, as you can tell, he learned a lot of lessons and bumps and bruises along the way. But eventually, figured out that the formula to make those things happen. And did did that locate? Did the new location stay as a steakhouse, or did you change to to meet the the demands of the the marketplace? What happened there?
2: Yeah, all those things were true. Yes, the steakhouse stayed, but. Um <laughs> to meet the demands of the marketplace, one, we had this successful place downtown, this, this wood-fired pizza place. But like I said, the location was poor. The visibility was poor once they put in that new access road. And it was really um, it was really something we knew we didn't want to continue. I mean, not to say we didn't want to continue the concept. We didn't want to renew the lease because the, the landlord saw that we were super successful. So, you know, we had a really open-ended lease. And, uh, you know, every every so often there were all these escalation clauses in a lease where it was just going to keep going up and up and up. And I wanted out of that space. So I mentioned to you this ice storm kind of took away a lot of our, our opportunity to make money the rest of that season. So it was almost a blessing in disguise that the lease was up downtown. And so I crafted this plan to go to my bank and say, listen, you know, I want to expand on this building i want to build a second floor and i want to build a new brick oven and i want to literally combine the two restaurants and because i don't want to renew this lease downtown it's a viable concept but i don't want to stay there so i need to borrow more money to expand and to you know make the concept even more powerful than it is and the bank totally bought into that and they totally supported it and they wrote another big check which If they hadn't have done, I literally would not have had enough working capital to probably reopen that next season. So that was the blessing in disguise for the ice storm. So we ended up getting the money, building on the second floor, building the brick oven, and then now here's where things get a little funky too. Now quickly, the way my mind works is I'm thinking, oh, pizza is super successful. The steakhouse is yet to prove itself, and steak is more profitable than pizza. But I don't suddenly want the pizza to start cannibalizing sales of steak so I attempted to isolate or separate the two as if the two restaurants were you know were not one in the same they were two separate places so I actually built a separate entrance you know to the pizza place than the steakhouse and people would walk in the door and suddenly mom would you know mom would want uh, a pasta dish and the kids would want pizza but dad would want steak and they didn't understand why they couldn't get both you know And that was kind of a disaster that I had to work my way through. So that whole first season, we had a lot of explaining to do the customers. I'm sure we turned quite a few people off because I was terribly afraid that, you know, that our profit margins were going to be vastly diminished. And, again, I I mentioned earlier we had a high overhead place. I needed to sell as much high-profit stuff as possible. But then the walls just came down that second season because it just wasn't working. So now suddenly we combined the menus, and now the place expanded even further. And now you can have sushi, and now you can have steak, and now you can have pasta and homemade salads and full bar and the whole thing. And, yes, pizza did make up 70% of our sales, but we made sure that, you know, we maximized our efficiencies, we maximized their profits. We came up with this concept of cash cows, which we've talked about a lot you know, these items that have very high perceived value but are almost pure profits put on the plate, and that elevated the check averages and the bottom line profits, and then we built our bar business and we sold lots of alcohol, and then we brought in the rock bands and the cover charges and getting people to stay there dancing late at night. And, yeah, and all those things were kind of the formula for success once those walls came down. So, again, you know, it's pioneering your business. It's learning what's working and what isn't working and realizing quickly the things that don't work. You have to quickly abandon and make them work before you turn off too many customers, you know, until you ultimately find what everyone appreciates. And that's ultimately what happens.
1: Man, I think that's kind of. I think it's fascinating to go through the journey of um, I have an idea, and oh man, it's going to work! I can't wait. And then and then finding out, oh geez, uh, I kind of missed. I kind of missed on that one, and then realizing it, and, and then shifting, and 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 continually shifting until you find it, right? And I think people right. they, they get mm-hmm. that, but sometimes we get stuck in our our, our ideas of. Well no, it's going to be this way and and I'm going to stick to that and, and then all of a sudden lose 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 and then boom you're out of business. And and you you know you you look like you dodged and weaved a lot in the beginning there, you know, moving and de- shaking sure. yeah. making things happen and and, and I think pivot. I, I think um you know what 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 you know, I think what got you through was um was was, was the systems obviously and kind of this disbelief and yeah. kind of just kind of mm-hmm. continually going at it. So let's kind of end or start to wrap up there where where you've got a business that's you know, gone through the mill and you've kind of figured stuff out and probably at some point you're starting to think about the, the exit strategy for that. And when a business thinks about exit strategy, you can't just decide you know, on one day that you want to sell the business because you, you just can't. So you have to have um, systems in place, revenue, history, things like that in place so you can get, you can get a good amount of money for it how did you go about that process of you know i, I know you, you you know again kind of get into the making sure you have the systems in place so highlight all that stuff the fact that you put all the lessons into into work and then you later put it into programs and stuff and then having that in place to say okay I'm ready to sell and then obviously obviously finding the seller and doing the doing the transaction what do you think about all that yeah well
2: i guess that ties into okay so the systems are critically important but then the cash flow is ultimately the determinant of sales price in your business. And, yeah, there's lots of formulas to value a business or a restaurant. And, yes, you you've take into consideration the value of the real estate. You take into consideration the value of the equipment. Goodwill plays a huge part, you know. Uh, Is this a turnkey business that someone can walk into and whether they know anything or not, there's management in place, there's systems in place where we can just take over and I can run this place with the managers that have already been running this place successfully. That plays into it in terms of value. But then the end equation is cash flow. How much does this business throw off in free and clear cash flow after taxes when all is said and done? And that comes down to the net profit margin of a restaurant. And interestingly, um, statistics say that the average, you know, full-serve restaurant in this country, the net margin or net income profit is 10 to 15% of sales or 10 to $0.15 cents on every dollar sale. So it's not a huge amount of profit. The margins really are this slim. But through all these systems and through all this incredible marketing and profit maximizing, everything I did to squeeze every nickel out of that place from a cost and profit standpoint and everything we did to really blow the marketing firepower through the roof to really become a dominant brand, ultimately in, impacted net income and net profit, which was double that of the average full service restaurant. So we enjoyed a 31% net profit margin on this place, and that in turn threw off tons of cash flow, which made this place super appealing to a potential buyer. It was a turnkey operation with systems in place that had a fantastic dream team staff that literally nothing was broken. It had a huge clientele that, that was fiercely loyal to the place, and it was highly, highly profitable. So that was like the magic formula to ultimately sell. So you sell at the top end of your game. You sell for a very high price, and, you know, <laughs> then you move on to the next thing. That's kind of how it all came about. That's an exit strategy right there. It's interesting because yeah. I thought about exit strategies right from the beginning as if, okay, how am I going to get out of this next year, five years from now, ten years from now? What are the goals? Where do we want to be with this thing, you know, in case we don't want to do this anymore? and ultimately. You know, I ran this place for – once we opened the new place, it was like 18 years in that location, just growing and building every year to get to that 31% net profit, you know, and to get it to be this this dynamo that was nationally recognized in major magazines that had incredible online reviews and, you know, it just goes from there. That literally was the magic formula for us. But it was all coming down to the systems – that we created and put in place in that restaurant to make it so such a dynamo.
1: Well, I, I like what you said there when you said you thought about exit strategy from the beginning. And, Mm -hmm. uh, if you are a restaurateur and, and you haven't thought about that yet, um, Think about it now uh, because you, you may not want to get out uh, this year or two years from now but but five to ten years you may and and when you do want to get out you want to get out and make some money and the only way to do that is to have uh, cash flow have a system have a brand have equity um, have affinity from your customers that that someone will want to take and buy and is valuable and roger talks about 31 percent net margin that is off the freaking chart in terms of success, and he talks about, you know, 10 to 15 being the average. And, and if you're doing 10 to 15, you're very, very happy usually. And, you know, some people are getting, you know, uh, 5 to 8 and, and so forth. And of course, if you're not making money, it's zero. But, but so, so huge numbers there. And now what I think is fascinating is, so Roger did that, what, 18, 24, 25 years total between, between all the places. And then you moved into your, you talk about, and then you, you sold and you moved into your next chapter. Which is taking everything that you did learn in those businesses, and turning it into programs for other restaurateurs, so they don't have to go through all the same sorts of uh, pitfalls and struggles. They can kind of learn from those lessons and apply it to their business successfully. And, uh, and I know you do that through through, through some coaching programs and, and your academy yeah. program, mm-hmm. obviously Sales Stars you touched on before. So so t- tell folks where you are now in terms of helping restaurants um with some of the stuff you've learned how you help them succeed sort of similar results what do you think
2: well it all began 25 years ago when i didn't know anything about the business the first thing i did was immerse myself in every book i could read about opening a restaurant and opening a bar and that was an incredibly laborious process of you know Figure it out as you go along, but read and absorb as much information as possible. And now, you know, so many years later, when I wanted to take everything I've learned in 20-plus years of running, you know, super successful businesses or restaurants, I wanted to make a turnkey online course that was a one-stop shop everything that anyone needed to know if they had a dream and they wanted to start and open their very first restaurant with very little or no experience, much like I did, or I also wanted to be equally effective for chefs who have worked in restaurants forever, and they always wanted their own place, and they always wanted to put their own stamp on the food and and create their own restaurant, and one thing I quickly realized is, you know, chefs are incredibly talented people, but many chefs don't have business skills, and they don't realize that a restaurant is a business. It's not just about putting out delicious you know, appealing food. It's also about human resources and managing people and insurances and liabilities and legalities and, and bar operations and, you know, and, and marketing and all these skill sets that they may or may not have. So, it's, you know, the academy is also for them. And then thirdly, if you're an existing operator, maybe you're in the 5 to 8% net profit range if you're making money at all. You know, I see so many operators that I work with, that are, you know, getting into their middle age years, they've been at this forever, and they're spinning their wheels, and they're not making a ton of money. They're making a living, but they're not making a life. They've missed their kids growing up. They've missed their, their kids' graduations and soccer games. I see it all the time, and they just want out, and so you know, they either want out as an exit strategy and they need to build value into their business or they're happy where they're at that they just want to be doing better. They want to increase the profitability. They want to increase their service levels. They want to increase their marketing firepower. They want to maybe dominate the competition and not just do okay. And so, you know, the Academy really is a is a five-module turnkey course that puts these financial controls in place I call them three foundational fundamentals. The first being staff development, training, recognition, and rewards. That's building your dream team and then creating that culture of hospitality, family, and fun, and then training your people not just to serve but also to sell and to maximize your opportunities, you know, that's a foundational element. The second foundational element is clearly the cost controls and the profit maximization piece. And then the third foundational element is marketing and affinity, building loyalty with your customers so that your customers and your staff are brand ambassadors for your business and both your staff and your customers are telling everybody they know what, everything that's great about your place so that the word of mouth saves you marketing dollars and literally just brings people and fills seats and then creates that loyalty, that affinity that we talk so much about. So that's what the Academy is about. It's about those three foundational fundamentals in a turnkey package that someone can go through you know, in a very logical fashion. Depending on who you are, whether you're starting your first place, whether you're a chef that you know has the cooking part down and the costing part down, but doesn't have the other parts down, or an existing operator that's just spinning their wheels that wants to do better and wants to really maximize profits and marketing firepower. So, yeah, that's what the academy is about, and the academy includes you know the complete sales stars training piece that literally started the whole thing. I mean, that was the that was the cornerstone piece that, that really led to the success of the, the whole place, just creating a better level of service and recognizing that service will always be your biggest and strongest competitive advantage. So
1: that's kind of what that's about. One of things I wrote down there, you said it a couple of times, uh spinning spinning their wheels and if an operator uh that that's really common. I get I get it from our audience of folks where you've been in the business for a while, but things have changed so dramatically in the landscape and you look up and you're like, whoa, what the heck's going on? Uh, You know, I'm I'm not making money anymore, not making what I used to make Um, because the equations have changed. Um, uh, Costs have gone up, um, service levels have changed, social media has changed, how you market, how you find people. So things have changed uh, dramatically. And so um, if if you are spinning your wheels and you're wondering why things aren't working, the way you want. You can absolutely go to Google, and you can Google your your brains out, and you can find a whole bunch of stuff. You can absolutely go go to go to our stuff as well at running restaurants, and I encourage you to do that. But you, you also can can use a program like Rogers. Um, the academy is going to give you all that stuff, all in one place. So so you take out you take out a lot of the question marks of what do I do um, in this case, and and kind of walks you through the pieces of your business that you may not have lined up and so it's it's actually something that people are hesitant to do but um, if you can step outside of where you are and, and you know, and, and just, I think, I think about it like coaching, right, Roger? I know your kids do sports, mine, mine do sports. Yeah. And, um, you know, they have coaches, they have trainers and, you know, and, and, and people, once we graduate from schools and, and colleges, we think we don't need any more teaching or any more coaching or, or anything else. Like we think we got this, but the reality is we don't. We need help, whether it's, you know, picking up a book or, or working with a coach or buying a program or going to uh, a seminar or a conference, we got, You got to do those things outside of your business to grow your business. Uh, otherwise, you know, you end up kind of stale and so forth. So um, I would definitely look at Roger's programs. We'll give you some links to that stuff. Um, just, just to clarify, Roger, someone can go through your program online um, at their own pace. What else is going on there?
2: Yeah, it's absolutely turnkey. You know, it's a series of video trainings. It's audio tutorials. Um, fully turnkey, you know, automated spreadsheets that are super simplistic, you know, that just give you what your critical numbers are. A lot of restaurants out there that I deal with, you know, they're not taking regular inventory. You ask them, um, do you know what your food and beverage costs are? They can't tell you that. A critical piece is how profitable your menu is. And a lot of people, you know, throw a menu together based on what they think they need to have, but they don't know what Each individual item contributes to bottom line profit, and a lot of times lower profit items are your biggest sellers, and that's the kiss of death. So these are all simple tutorials that just plug in your critical numbers, make it simple to analyze in minutes a week, and literally walk you through the marketing stuff we talked about, the service and the sales training, and just give you these systems that you can then execute in your place. And it's a little bit of homework up front, but what is it, right? But once the systems are in place, now that's a powerful formula. You know, you got to have those systems whether you want to sell your business down the road, whether you want to franchise your business, whether you want to just take some time off and hire a good manager to run the place. This gives you the freedom and the time and greater profits to do all of those things. So yeah, right.
1: I mean that's, that's kind of what it's about. Right. And 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 Roger beyond the academy and beyond sales stars, if someone wanted to uh, talk with you, I mean, and say, you know, a lot of yeah. people want to mm-hmm. work directly with somebody, kind of ha- kind of go along with the process. I know you do that for a number of, of clients across the, the country, and even uh, even around the world. I know you're working with people internationally as well. How yes, does something I like did. that work out?
2: Yeah, you know, I I love to talk to people, so I'll give you a, you know, I, I'm happy to do a free phone consultation and talk about what your issues are and, and how I might be able to help. Um, they can reach out to me you know, through my email address, which is uh, Roger, R-O-G-E-R, at com, And, yeah, I take on uh, certain times a year new coaching clients. And I, you know, this is something, what I normally do is I use the academy as the foundational element, and then I coach people through those things. I kind of hold their hand, and I hold them accountable to the exercises in the academy. Because a lot of people are real hands-on. They can dive in and you know, and they're self-motivated, and some people may not, they might need a little bit more of a helping hand, you know, so then not only are they performing these exercises, but I kind of analyze their critical numbers, and I I apply a fresh perspective and an expert perspective to it, and we do your inventory, and we do your, you know, your menu costing, and we do all of those critical critical things, the daily break-evens. You know, I give you those marketing exercises to do and all the great promotional ideas that, that I executed. And I and I compare your results. And, you know, and we talk every single week for usually it's a, a five or a six-week period where we have calls every week and I literally hold you to task on all this stuff to make sure you execute it. And then I analyze what you have done. So that will give you the best chance for success. You know, if your bandwidth is low or if you've got a lot of balls in the air, which most restaurateurs do, that sort of thing, so yeah, you know, we try to give you everything that you need to succeed
1: yeah that that sounds like um well, I guess the way I would put it is 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 the the holding uh, holding accountable is, is the piece that's really important because uh we i'll go back to I'll go back to the gym for a second, you know if we if you if you say I'm going to work out. Um, the chances of you working out yourself are, let's say, twenty percent. But if you have a trainer or a friend who mm-hmm. you make an appointment with to go to the gym, all of a sudden you're you're at ninety five percent. You're not going to let them down. You're going to be held accountable. You're going to both achieve achieve exactly goals. So right. I really think that's a I really think that's a valuable process to go through that you offer for for those folks is you know guiding along the way and um you know and if you listen to this if you listen to this whole session and, and, I, and I hope you did and took a lot of notes i i know i did but you kind of would feel like uh from Roger's story that he's been through the pitfalls of the business he's put it all together and he's not not a, not a you know not a 19 year old guy thinking he can help your restaurant uh this is a dude that's been through through everything you can conceivably go through and has built out very thoughtfully the processes in place to help restaurants succeed so i, I highly recommend from from my side checking out um his program i love the idea Um, If you're somebody that wants to go through it with him, you know, getting in contact with Roger, you know, have have a 30-minute call with him. Uh, I I know he's he's very happy to jump on the phone and and talk with folks. You know, have that 30-minute call, see if you guys hit it off, see if there's something you can do together um, and so forth. So I'll I'll put Roger's uh, contact information on there, his email, so you can definitely uh, feel free to do that encourage folks to um, sales stars is an absolutely no brainer for your business that's a program that will that will just dramatically uh, pay for itself in about two days or two seconds uh because your staff are absolutely going to sell more stuff so if 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 anything pick up rogers sales sales stars program uh, for your team to get the training they need to sell more stuff and then the academy, if you're looking for a deeper dive, absolutely go for that so uh, Roger, I appreciate you sharing everything with with me you kind of you always open up uh your heart and your mind and, and you let it all out you don't hold anything back when you share stuff with folks. So I always appreciate that brother.
2: It's always a great time chatting with a fellow industry professional and a colleague. And, you know, we have a great time just talking shop and restaurants and we both have a passion for helping other operators just not only succeed, but not get out of the park. So I always appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, Jim.
0: Yeah,
1: man, absolutely. I do as well. Um, hit, hit, uh, hit folks with your, um your, your social media stuff, URLs. I mean, you, you mentioned the email, where else can they find you? Yeah,
2: um, obviously we're on um, Twitter at Restaurant Rock One, uh, the numeral one. So that's our Twitter handle. Um, we're on Facebook slash Restaurant Rockstars. Um, the URL is obviously uh, restaurantrockstars.com. Um, we have a regular podcast we didn't mention. You know, I, I really enjoy the podcasting piece because every week I either interview an industry operator that's had great success. For someone with leading-edge technology, or just something that will help operators succeed, whether it's a finance topic, a marketing topic, a service topic. Every week there's free content that we put out that you can find on our website, and you can subscribe to that uh, on our website um, through iTunes, and then just have it delivered to your inbox uh, every single week. So, yeah, that's a lot of fun. And um, if you like to listen in your car, that sort of thing, it's a a good time, plus it's – Always key takeaways there in, in those podcast episodes. We've, we're up to episode 110, so we've had 110 podcast episodes and still going strong. So yeah, tune into that.
1: Yeah, def- definitely check out Roger's uh, podcast. You can you can find that uh, on his website, or just you just go in the, into the iTunes store. It's really really easy to find. Yep, exactly um, That's and 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 sub, and subscribe i i do subscribe his stuff is his stuff is good there uh, meanwhile yeah so on our side on running restaurants uh, side yeah pretty pretty much the same stuff um visit our site runningrestaurants.com from there you can get our free newsletter. Uh, and when you're on the newsletter and that very first issue at the bottom of that you'll see all of our social media channels, including Facebook and Twitter and our iTunes podcast, also in Google Play. You'll see the YouTube links uh, and you can search for us on those platforms and subscribe to us so that you don't miss anything. So so we're out there. We wanna we wanna help restaurateurs succeed by giving them the information and tips and tools and, and hopefully we did that today in terms of providing some value for the listeners. Uh, I think we covered a lot and, you know, we talked a lot about the story and hopefully you identified with pieces of that and, and, you know, everything from the service to keeping things simple to people equation to costs and maximizing profits and all the things you do in between. So, so we actually hit on a lot. So Roger, I will, I will wrap it up, buddy. I appreciate it. Uh, folks, it's been Jamie Oikel from RunningRestaurants.com along with Roger Bodwin from RestaurantRockstars.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you soon. Thanks
0: much.